Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realise that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also, buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Well, thank you, Sue, uh, for reading that for us this morning. And um, yeah, some challenging words, and we're going to unpack that in a in a, in a little bit, but I'm just going to encourage you, and some of you love this, some of you are not again, but I'm just going to encourage you to stand, get out your Bibles, get out any notepads that uh, you might want to use this morning, and we're going to pray uh, as we come to God's Word and to come to unpack it this morning. Um, if you can't stand, that's fine, we're not going to kind of keep score on who's standing and who's not, but just encourage you to activate our bodies so that we switch on our minds, and so I'm going to pray, and as we pray, I just want to give thanks to the Lord for Billy Graham. Uh, most of us would have seen that he passed away during the week in his 100th year. Apparently he didn't quite get to 100, but um, a faithful servant of the Lord. And many people across the planet either owe their decision to faith directly to Billy Graham or through people who gave their life to Jesus through Billy Graham's ministry and then led others. And so we want to give thanks to that uh, great man of faith and um, also invite God to, to shape us by his word this morning. So... Father, we just stand and we give thanks to you for Billy Graham. We give thanks to you for uh, the many people he led uh, to Jesus, whose lives are secure for eternity because of uh, his boldness and his faithfulness. So we give thanks to him in the name of Jesus. And Father, this morning, uh, as we remember Billy Graham, a man who put so much trust and faith in your word and the power of your word, we pray that as we come to your word, that we would not treat it with contempt or complacency, but that we would, as the last line of what Sue read for us this morning says, that we would have ears to hear, that we would receive your word this morning and be shaped by it. In Jesus' almighty name we pray. Amen. So for the last uh, four weeks, well, this week included, uh, makes it four weeks, we've been talking about life renovation. And so I just want to give you a little flash forward uh, to next week. Uh, next week we're going to pivot towards Easter and we're going to start talking through a series called It Is Finished. Uh, so uh, in John's Gospel, uh, John records as, 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 his, as Jesus' last words on the cross saying, It is finished. And so we're going to explore throughout that series what Jesus finished on the cross what Jesus accomplished through the cross and through his resurrection. and So it's not going to be a systematic theology kind of idea. We're just going to look at different passages through the New Testament that give us different perspectives on the cross and resurrection. And uh, We're going to be following through actually the, the lectionary, the common lectionary passages and picking out um, those New Testament passages and just exploring together what the cross and resurrection means for us and for, for all people. And, but so this week to finish off our life renovation series, we're, we're finishing off uh, with this message, from passenger to passionate. So we're, we've spoken about shifting from makeshift to meaningful. We've spoken about shifting from maxed out to margin. Uh, we've spoken about shifting from broken to beautiful. 
Uh, and I want to finish with this message from passionate, from no, from passenger to passionate. And I, I have to say, this is the message in the whole series that I'm most passionate about, most excited about uh, what God wants to do through it uh, and in us through through this message. And so each week we've had a question that we've kind of dug into and explored as we've, we've sought through this life renovation series. And so the question I want us to ask ourselves this week is this. Are you a passenger or are you passionate? When you think about your life and your faith uh, and, and any area of who you are, are you a passenger or are you passionate? And so what I mean by passenger is, are you just been carried along, kind of going with the flow wherever life takes you? Or are you passionate? Are you uh, eagerly directing the course of your life? There's an intentional connection between what we spoke about in the first week about having meaning and purpose and what we're ending this series with about being passionate. Because we have no meaning and purpose that ends up leading us into the place of, of being a passenger. So are you a passenger or are you passionate? Are you wholehearted or are you a bit more meh about life? If we think about a home renovation, which has been our, our metaphor for this whole series, uh, when someone has the opportunity to uh, renovate their home, to renew and restore their home, they, they often shift from just seeing their home as something that they get to live in and sleep in and this kind of utilitarian approach to their home that uh, it just, it's just, I guess it's good enough to... When they've renovated their home, there's this passion about it. They, they all of a sudden want people to see the new back deck and the new bedrooms and, and the renovated kitchen. There's an excitement that comes about uh, your home once it's renovated. There's this opportunity to, to be renewed with passion for the place that you live. And so as our final note of this series, I, I want us to take that on board with our life. We've talked through several different kind of areas of renovating our life, but I want to bring all that together with, with sharing that we, we should then have this passion about our life. Not a, not a sinful pride that we boast in who we are, but a passion for the life that God has given us. And so as we think about that shift from a home that's just okay to a home that we're passionate about uh, and, and thinking about that in terms of our life, shifting from a life that is just okay to a life that we're passionate about, I want you to, to stew on this question. Are you a passenger or are you passionate? Or in other words, are you dull or are you dynamic? Are you meh or does your life have momentum? Are you apathetic or are you enthusiastic? Are you a passenger or are you passionate? And the truth I want us to lay hold of this morning is this, that as followers of Jesus, we are called to live with passion. So wherever we are on, on that scale of, of passenger to passionate, um, and it might be different in different areas of our life, the, the truth is that as followers of Jesus, we're called to live with passion. As people who were created by a God who created us with meaning and purpose, we're created to live a life of passion. And so to, to kind of unpack this, I, I want to draw our attention to, to Mark chapter 12, verse 30. And, and this situation that this comes up in is there's this Bible scholar that sees that Jesus is, is a fairly wise teacher and he comes to Jesus and says, well, out of all the commandments, out of all the instructions in God's word, in the law, what is the greatest commandment? And so Jesus responds with quoting uh, one of the commandments from the Old Testament and, and, and he says that this is the most important. Mark 12.30 says, To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And so this is Jesus' response to what is the most important instruction in the entire Bible. But what we often do with it is that we oversimplify it or we over-theologize it and we shorten it down to the most important thing is to love God because that sentence is a little bit wordy, isn't it? And so we take that and we go, okay, Jesus says that the most important thing to do is to love God. But I want to encourage us this morning as we think about being passengers or passionate that Jesus doesn't actually say that the most important thing is to love God. 
He says the most important thing in all of God's word is to love God with all of your heart. Now the heart is the center of our being. It's the center of our emotions and our desires metaphorically. It is both literally and metaphorically the thing that makes us tick. And so when Jesus says that the most important command is to love God with your whole heart, he he says that the most important thing to do is to love God with all of the center of your being. All of your heart, all of your desire, all of your passions, the very core of what makes you tick is to be completely directed towards loving God. Jesus doesn't say that the most important thing is to love God. He says that the most important thing is to love God with all of your soul. The Greek word for soul here is psyche. To love God with all of your psyche. It's your unique identity. It's your personality. It's what God breathed into Adam. In the Greek translation of Genesis in... uh, In Genesis 1, where we're told that God breathed into Adam in the Greek translation that the people at Jesus' time were using as their their Bible, that's the psyche that God breathed into Adam. And so your unique identity, your psyche, your personality, that which God breathed into you to make you who you are, Jesus says that all of that is to be directed towards loving the Lord your God. Jesus did not say that the most important thing is to love God. He said that the most important thing is to love God with all of your mind. Your mind is the center of your understanding. It's your intelligence. It's where your thoughts and your reason live. And so by saying to love God with all of your mind, Jesus is saying, love God with your every thought, with your every bit of understanding, with your every bit of reason, with every bit of intelligence that you have, that is to be directed towards loving God. Jesus did not say that the most important thing is to love God. He said that the most important thing is to love God with all of your strength. Now, strength is our power, it's our might, it's our force, it's our ability. And interestingly, the Greek words here, literally translated, uh, involve overcoming immediate resistance or inertia. And so we're to love God with that that pushes against resistance, that builds momentum in our life. And so Jesus doesn't say that the most important thing is to love God. He says the most important thing is to love God with all of your capability, your strength, your might, your power, that within you that can overcome resistance. And so Jesus says that the most important thing The great commandment we often call it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And and so if that's not a picture of of passion, then I have never seen one. If that's not a picture, in fact, of passionate obsession with a single-minded purpose in life, then I've not seen one. See, when we oversimplify or over-theologize Jesus' commandment, we actually end up living in disobedience to it. Because we can say, well, I love God. But do we love God with our, our centre of our being that makes us tick? Do we love God with our unique identity and personality? Do we love God with all of our thoughts and intellect? Do we love God with all of our strength? And so we're called to direct everything passionately with all of us, wholeheartedly, whole mind, whole being, whole strength towards loving God. And to that picture, I want to add this uh, scripture from Paul in Romans 12, 11. He says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And so the Greek word here for, for zeal and for fervor, Um, is actually literally to burn with such intensity or to boil over. And so zeal is a a word for passion. And and, and so Paul is saying to the Roman church and to us by extension that we should burn with intensity 
In fact, that we should never be in a situation where we're not burning with intensity. We should boil over with passion. In fact, we should never be in a situation where we never boil over with passion. It is to be zealous, to be ardently passionate, to be deeply committed, to desire greatly, to be completely intent upon. This word is pregnant with meaning surrounding this idea of passion. And so, as I said, Paul says zeal is something that we should never lack. We should never, as followers of Jesus, be short on zeal. We are meant to be on fire. We are meant to boil over. We're never meant to be passive. We're never meant to be disengaged. We're never meant to be dispassionate. We're never meant to be apathetic. We're never meant to be indifferent. We're never meant to be lethargic. We're never meant to be dull. We're meant to boil over. So are you, passion, are you a passenger or are you passionate? Is the great commandment to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, your whole strength, is that a descriptor of who you are? Or are you lacking in zeal? And so as I've said, as followers of Jesus, we are called to live with passion. But the thing is, our cultural environment conditions us towards apathy. We're called to live with passion. We're, called to, we're created to live with passion, but our cultural environment, the world we're in, uh, the community around us, the, the, the media, whatever label you want to put on that, conditions us towards apathy. And I think it does this in two ways. And the first way it does this is that we get drowned in a river of mind-numbing garbage designed to sedate our passion. We get drowned in a river of mind-numbing garbage designed to, to sedate our passion. And so we live in a world filled with content, in inverted commas, and um, I'm told, and I have not done the research to verify this, but I'm told that there's something like 100 hours of video uploaded to YouTube every minute. That the world is being bombarded with more content, uh, more video, and that's just one site, more every minute than we could possibly watch in a week is being uploaded to YouTube. And so we live in a world filled with content that consumes us and sweeps away the sparks of passion. We, we, we get sold on a lie of treating ourselves or, or living with balance, which I'm not saying living with balance is entirely bad, but, but we, we kind of go, well, I, I don't want to get too fired up about something. I'll just sit down and watch 14 hours of Netflix. Because to me, the picture of... Uh, the great commandment isn't actually a picture of a balanced life. It's a picture of a life so passionately tilted towards one thing that it disbalances everything else. And so we live in a cultural environment that pulls us towards apathy by drowning out the sparks of passion. We, we were going to get excited, we are going to get passionate about Jesus, but then we put on Netflix. Or we thought we'd just check Facebook first, or Instagram, or Twitter or we'd put on some TV, or we'd watch some YouTube and try and catch up and get through it all. Um, we'd go to a news.com uh, website, you know, because we want to be informed. Um, uh, Snapchat, that's one that I thought, oh, you know, trying to connect with the younger people, because um, apologies, we didn't have youth church on today when we said we were going to. Um, or even just messengers, trying to keep in touch with everybody because we're so connected digitally that we just feel that we've got to stay in constant contact with the entire planet. And all of this just drowns out any spark of passion that we, we tried to muster, any flame, any hope of boiling over with passion if we get swept away in the river of content that our culture drowns us with gets extinguished. And so this is the first way in which our culture drowns the passion out of us that pulls us towards apathy. But the second way, at the same time as trying to drown our passion away, the world screams at us that we have to be passionate about everything. 
all of these channels or platforms or forums, whatever they want to call themselves, scream at us constantly that you have to care about everything. You have to be passionate about everything. And we get this guilt and shame heaped on us for not being passionate about the right things at times. My brother and, and his wife have um, joined a CrossFit gym and they're super fit and um, that causes other levels of shame for me around the middle. But, um, but they get passionate about it. And, and so when you talk to them, you start to feel a little bit like, oh, gee, there's something wrong with me because I'm not passionate about CrossFit. And apologies to Ben and Steph for using them as an example. But, but they're pretty light on the level of CrossFit passion. And you talk to some people who do CrossFit or they've found a new diet or, or, and, and you talk to them for a few minutes and you feel like, oh, there's something wrong with me because I don't really feel passionate about that. And so the world is screaming at us to care deeply about everything. And in our attempts to be passionate about everything, we end up being apathetic about it all. Or we jump from one passion to the next. Because if everything is important, nothing is. If everything is important, then nothing is, and we end up being apathetic or dispassionate. We end up being lukewarm. We try to have it all when we're meant to be all for one thing. So we end up as passengers trying to keep up with the tide rather than passionate, setting our direction. And so let me remind you that not only are we called to live with passion, but we're called to be different. And we've come to this verse several times throughout this series, but we're called to be different. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. And so I just want to grab that first sentence this morning again and say, we're called to not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. We're called to not get swept up in the flow or have our passion drowned out by the river of content or to be led astray into feeling that we need to be passionate about everything. We're called to not conform we're called to be different we don't need to be passionate about everything and so this morning um, I've got some confessions I want to make dramatic pause while I drink water and leave you sitting on what's he going to say so yeah I've got some confessions I want to make and the first is I'm not passionate about staying up to date with tv there's, there's maybe one or two shows that we like to watch, my wife and I, together, and that's really more about spending time together. But I'm not passionate about staying up to date with TV, and so uh, if the water cooler conversation turns to the, the latest TV show and what's happening in that, I'm, I'm okay with being completely out of the loop. I'm not passionate about that. I'm not passionate about gardening. Um, I'm loving the rain at the moment, but I'm also aware that it means that I'm going to have to mow the lawn at some point in the future, um, which I'm okay with doing. I don't mind doing it. I, I care a bit about our house and I want it to look okay, but I, I'm not passionate about gardening. I'm also not passionate about global warming. I, and I believe it's a thing and I believe it, we should care about it and people should be doing something about it, but I'm not getting up at 4.30 in the morning to plot the course about what we should do about global warming. So I'm not saying it's not important. I'm just saying I'm not passionate about it. I'm not passionate about saving the rainforest. I think we should save it. I think it's important. I think it's a beautiful part of God's creation. But I personally, I'm not passionate about it. It's not getting me up at 4.30 in the morning. I'm not passionate about my appearance. I mean, I don't want to look stupid. I don't want to look, um, you know, bad. I kind of care about it a bit, but I'm not passionate about it. And so the point I'm trying to make is that there can be some really important things in the world, like our rainforest, like our global warming, like how you look, maybe. But you don't have to be passionate about it all. 
If that's not a passion that you feel God's calling you to, then you don't have to be. If you want to burn with passion, you can't spread the fire too thin. You need to decide what you're not going to be passionate about. Because we're called to be blazing lights of passion in a cold and dark world devoid of true passion. We're called to boil over. We're called to not be lukewarm, but to be on fire. And this call to to be passionate, to be on fire, is no more uh, jarring than in what uh, Sue read for us this morning from Revelation. The, the rebuke for the lukewarm church in Laodicea. And so just to recap what Sue read, that, that passage begins with these words. Jesus says uh, through the, the um, man named John to uh, pass on to the church at Laodicea, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And so Jesus says, I know your deeds. Their deeds allow Jesus to make a diagnosis. Because we can't have passion on the inside that doesn't show up on the outside. You can't burn inwardly with passion for something without that showing up so that others can see it without that showing up, so at least Jesus can see it. As we prayed this morning, Abraham prayed and reminded us of the, um, in, our, in our kind of service team this morning, Abraham prayed and reminded us of the verse um, from Jeremiah, where Jeremiah says, God's word's like a fire shut up in my bones. If I try and hold it in, I just can't. And so the deeds of the Laodicean church allow Jesus to make a diagnosis and that diagnosis is that the church is neither cold nor hot, it's lukewarm. And Jesus says lukewarm is something that he simply cannot swallow. He's going to spit it out or if we were to translate that more literally, the lukewarm church makes Jesus vomit. A more literal translation would be, because you are lukewarm, I'm about to vomit. And so Laodicea was a, was a city um, planted by a river, which would usually be a great place for a city to live um, with great fresh water, but they were just downstream from uh, Heriopolis, which is famous for its hot springs. And so by the time the water flowed down to Laodicea, the, the, the cool river water was mixed with the hot spring water from Laodicea and filled with minerals, and so it was undrinkable. And so to provide this city with water... Uh, they, were, they had an aqueduct um, from, from many kilometres away uh, transporting water to the city, but much of the last few kilometres of that ran essentially above ground and so the water would be warmed up by the sun. And so even that water was warmed up by the time it got to Laodicea. Laodicea was a wealthy city. Some people describe it as the Swiss bank of the ancient world. It was on the crossroads of major highways and so people would deposit their money there as they travelled on to the next stage and they would withdraw their money from there to go back home. And, and it was also a city that produced a really fine quality black wool from the sheep that they uh, farmed in the area and, and it was, so it was a really wealthy city. There was also eye salve, this eye ointment that they made from the muck from the hot springs that um, I can't uh, attest to its uh, efficacy in medical terms, but people in that day bought it very expensively. And so it was a really wealthy city that you would want to live in, but their drinking water was the bane of their existence. Life was great in Laodicea, but the water was horrible. They hated it. And so this rebuke from Jesus about them being lukewarm and saying they were like water that was lukewarm would have stung. The one thing that they hated about existence in Laodicea was what Jesus compared them to. The water in their own city that made them vomit was what Jesus said they were like. I'm about to vomit. 
And it's an analogy that we're familiar with as well. Lukewarm is, is not what we like. I don't know about you, maybe you do like lukewarm, but I really love a nice hot coffee and I really love iced coffee. But there's this temperature in between that I'm just a bit blah about. It's not nice. We have hot tea and iced tea, but, but there's this temperature in between that's just not good. And so we get the idea, don't we, of of lukewarm and something that we just do not appreciate. Jesus goes on uh, in his words to the church and says, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. And they say, thank you for that word of encouragement, Jesus. See, part of the issue in Laodicea was that they were rich, that they had acquired wealth and they did not need anything except for refreshing water. See, nothing erodes our passion faster than wealth and comfort. Nothing makes passengers of the passionate faster than wealth and comfort. Because material comfort blinds us to our true spiritual need. See, they thought, well, we don't need anything. We've got everything we could possibly need through our wealth. We're comfortable. Uh, But Jesus says that there's needs that you don't see because of your comfort. You don't see that spiritually you are actually wretched. You don't see that spiritually you're actually pitiful. You don't see that spiritually, though you're wealthy materially, but spiritually you're poor. You don't see that you're blind and you're naked. There's things that you don't see because of your wealth and your comfort. And so this rebuke that Jesus has for the church in Laodicea is is a rebuke that the Western church and in particular the Australian church and even more in particular us today should heed very carefully. Because if nothing makes passengers of the passionate faster than wealth and comfort then we need to take heed of these words because we live in a world, in a culture that is more wealthy and more comfortable than any day in history before it. There are spiritual needs that we don't see when we're wealthy and comfortable. That's part of the point of fasting is to to put aside comfort so that we can come into connection with Jesus that we might see our true spiritual condition. And so Jesus goes on again to say in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. And so each of these is is a really clever reference from Jesus. He's very clever. Uh, It's a really clever reference from Jesus about all the areas that Laodicea was actually rich in. They had plenty of gold and he said, I counsel you to buy gold from me, that that wealth that can only be purchased or only be received from Jesus. I I counsel you to buy white clothes. See, they were really great and, and really famous for their black cloth. And so Jesus says, I counsel you to buy white clothes, something that you don't have, something that you need from me. Of course, he's not talking about literally having a preference for white over black. Um, if you happen to be wearing black this morning. Jesus says, I counsel you to cover your shameful nakedness and, and salve to put on your eyes. See, they, they had salve to heal natural eye conditions, but Jesus is saying, only I can make you truly see in a spiritual sense. And so each of these is clever references to, to the fact that our spiritual needs, our true needs can only be met through Jesus. It doesn't matter how wealthy or comfortable or whether we're the Swiss bank of the ancient world or whether we're the most wealthy and comfortable society in the history of this planet, there's things that we need that we can only have and get through Jesus. And in fact, those things far outweigh in importance the things in the material world that we can gain through wealth. There's things that we can only receive through Jesus. But then Jesus goes on in this verse to highlight the real response he wants from Laodicea. 
And this is the real response that, that Jesus would have for us if we're lukewarm, if we're not hot or cold. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. And so that's an encouragement for the church in Laodicea, but it's also encouragement for us this morning. If, if we're feeling a rebuke um, about this kind of apathy or dispassionate or being passengers this morning, then Jesus would want to say to you, I rebuke you because I love you. As we talked about last week when we we're talking about shifting from broken to beautiful, that, that Jesus, that the Father, that the Holy Spirit loves us exactly as we are. That there's no shortfall in, in the love of God or the acceptance of God or the affection of God towards us as we are right now. But He loves us too much to leave us as we are right now. And so He rebukes us, He corrects us, he disciplines us because he loves us. And then he says, so be earnest and repent. And so the prescribed action for the lukewarm is earnestness and repentance. But what we miss in this translation is something really significant to the text and it's really significant to what John meant in writing it down, I believe really significant about what Jesus actually wanted us to hear. And so I want to show you or describe to you, because um, I'm not going to put that on the screen, but describe to you something that happens in the Greek language here that we miss. And so bear with the Greek nerd stuff for a moment because, because it leads us to something really important. In, our fa- in fact, I believe the most key issue in this passage that's missed by that translation. See, the word for hot, when, when Jesus says you are neither hot nor cold, is zestos in the original Greek that it was written with, which has the root word zeo, which is the same root word for zeal in Romans 12.11. It's the word for boiling over. And so when Jesus says you are neither hot nor cold, we could translate that fairly reliably, but it wouldn't make as much clear sense of the text unless we explain it. You are neither cold or nor zealous. It's the same idea, it's the same meaning. You're neither cold, dispassionate, or boiling over on fire with passion. The word for heat and for zeal are the same root. What Jesus says the church lacks is what Paul says we should never be lacking in this boiling over. And the Greek word for earnest is zelu. And if you speak ancient Greek, apologies for my butchering. The Greek word for earnest is zelu, which is connected to this word zeo, which literally means to bubble or burn over because of being so hot. It figuratively means to burn with zeal, to be deeply committed to something with the implication of accompanying desire or passion. So I think earnest is unintentionally, I hope to believe, a pretty soft translation. Maybe earnest used to mean something more, but, but Jesus is not saying that earnest, sincere or, or genuine repentance is the remedy for passivity and apathy, for being lukewarm. He's saying repent, yes, repent in an earnest, sincere, genuine way, but, but Jesus is saying repent of your apathy, repent of your passivity, repent of your disengagement, repent of being a passenger and set yourself on fire. He's saying, repent and be zealous for the name of Jesus. Burn with passion for the name of Jesus. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart and with your whole soul and with your whole mind and your whole strength. The remedy in Jesus' uh, explanation to the church of Laodicea to their lukewarmness is to repent, to turn away of being lukewarm but to set themselves ablaze. Not some kind of quiet but sincere form of repentance. It's to light a fire and repent. To boil over and repent. To be obsessed with passion for the name of the Lord. The remedy for being lukewarm is to repent and to burn with passion. But to burn with passion, you need to build a fire. 
to burn with passion, you need to build a fire. Because everything ends up being lukewarm unless you act upon it. Everything ends up being lukewarm unless you act upon it. Everyone ends up being lukewarm or passive or being a passenger unless they do something about it. Um, And so uh, during the week, um, I took two pots of water. I put one on the stove until it boiled vigorously. I'm going to get James to come and be my guinea pig this morning. I did prep him beforehand. And I filled one up with ice, which doesn't look like as much as impressive on the screen as, as, um, as it did. But, so what I'm going to do, James, is I'm going to get you to put your hand in and tell us whether... The, you know, so this pot, you better get the right pot. This pot was boiling vigorously. So you don't trust me too much. I get you, you're testing it. Put your hand in. Now, is that kind of boiling hot, cold, or more like lukewarm? Coldish. Coldish, lukewarmish, yeah. Okay, so this was boiling with water. What about that pot? Kind of the hot, cold, kind of the same. Kind of the same. Kind of the same. Kind of the same. Yeah. yeah. Quite cool. relaxing. Yeah, quite relaxing. <laughs> yeah. And so the thing is, I had one pot that was boiling vigorously at the point it was about to bubble over. I had another pot filled with ice. It was freezing cold. I couldn't put my hand in it. But the thing is, I did that on Friday. And so now neither pot is hot nor cold, they're lukewarm. We kind of had a bit of a cooler couple of days than we've been having, so they're not as lukewarm as I perhaps anticipated. But the point is that one was boiling over, now it's lukewarm because I turned the fire off. One was freezing cold, now it's just kind of warmed up to being lukewarm. The, the point that we know and that I'm trying to illustrate is that everything will end up being the same temperature as the environment around it unless you do something to change that. The church will end up being the same temperature, the, the same level of passion for Jesus than the world around it unless we do something about it. You within the church... You as an individual will end up having the same level of heat, of passion, of desire for Jesus as the world around you unless you intentionally do something about it. If we want to boil over, we know we need to build a fire. So maybe you were boiling over. Maybe you can say, well, I'm passionate because 10 years ago, the product of my passion was this or that. But it only takes a couple of days for boiling water, less than that, to be honest, to end up lukewarm. It only takes, I don't know how long, a day, a week, a month, maybe a year for, for someone who was boiling with passion for Jesus who has turned off the flame to end up lukewarm. And so this morning I want to inspire us, I want to encourage us, I want to exhort us to, to build a fire in our life. This morning, I want to end with, with, with some thoughts about how we build a fire. Um, and I didn't do some handout sheets last week because we were focusing in on, on healing. And, um, but as we have through the rest of this series, I just want to give you something to take home and, and to reflect upon um, and to think about. And so some of you might kind of... I've got some for that side. Some of you might... You know, as we're talking now, be able to kind of respond and, and have instant answers to this. Some of us uh, take longer to process, but all of this is is just some thoughts and ideas, some prompts to help you to remember to think about how we build a fire in our life. And so the first steps of building a fire, and this is really not just building any fire, this is building a passionate enraging, boiling fire of passion for Jesus, the first thing we need to do is stop swallowing the sedatives. This is what we were talking about before when, when uh, I talked about Ben drowned in a river of content in inverted commas, Ben having our passion extinguished by the flood 
of, of media, of platforms, of Facebook, of Netflix. And, and so if we want to build a passionate, burning fire for Jesus, we need to stop swallowing the sedatives. We need to decide not to consume that which pours water on the fire of our passion. Now, I'm not talking here about literal sedatives. If you've been prescribed medication by your doctor, keep taking that. But we need to decide not to consume that which extinguishes our fire. And that will be different for all of us. Some of us, Facebook just floods us away. But others, it's a, a, a quick thing to give us some information and we move on. For some of us, TV, hour after hour, is what floods away our passion. And for some of us, there's little interest in it. So there's no blanket answer and I'm not saying these things like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TV and staying connected digitally are bad things in and of themselves but, but we need to start choosing not to swallow the things that pours water on the fire of our passion in life and our passion for Jesus. And so the question to ask ourselves there as we process that is what are you swallowing that's quenching your fire? That's a, an individual question for each of us to consider. What are you swallowing that's quenching your fire? The second step of, of building a fire of passion is, is to decide which fires you are no longer going to fuel. And so this is what we were talking about essentially when we, when we talked about the, the, the world, the, the culture screaming at us to care and be passionate about everything that we actually need to actively decide what things we're not going to be passionate about. So there's certain TV shows that I used to be really passionate about keeping up with. There's certain sporting activities um, that I used to be passionate about making sure I didn't miss a game. Now I usually find out that, you know, Australia got walloped by the Wallabies again on Sunday morning when someone at church says, oh, did you see? And I was like, no. I still love rugby, I still like watching it, but I have decided I am not going to fuel that fire. Because we can't keep all the fires burning. My, my theory, without any um, data or research to back it up, is we can have one all-consuming passion in life, two or three things we deeply care about below that, and a handful of other things we care about to a degree that we, we can't have and hold on to any more passions than that, otherwise we end up being apathetic about it all. And so to build a fire of passion for Jesus, the second step is to ask ourselves that question, what fires are you burning that you need to stop throwing fuel on? And the third step is to, to decide to fuel the fire of your passion for Jesus to stop swallowing the sedatives, to decide which fires you're not going to throw fuel on anymore, but, but then to decide which fires are you going to fuel. And, and as followers of Jesus, Jesus should be the number one fire that gets all of our fuel, all of our passion. And so the question is for you, how are you going to fuel the fire of your passion for Jesus? Some suggestions would be, gathering in the church, with the church, to have your passion stirred. And, and the beautiful thing about that is if you can picture a, a coal that's taken out of the fire and it's cold, but if you take that coal and put it back in the fire, it's going to light up again. And so the church is like the fire in a sense where we can come and, and catch a light from other people's passion and, and, and feed and fuel that fire as we go out from there. Other suggestions would be just putting on some worship music, reading the scriptures, reading your Bible, prayer, devotion, joining a life group. Just what are you going to do? What can you do in your life to throw fuel on the fire of your passion for Jesus? So that's it. That's how we build a fire. Stop swallowing the sedatives. Decide not to fuel certain fires that are consuming our passion and decide to throw fuel on the fire of Jesus. It's, it's actually pretty simple. The, the difficult part is, is making the choices to not do things and to do other things instead. 
The difficult part is walking it out. But we weren't created to be passengers in life. We are created to be passionate about life. We're called to be different. I want to wrap up our series this morning by by coming back to that that verse, Romans 12.2, but coming back to it in the translation that uh, we we read from last week, which is the Passion Translation. And I had a message from someone this week that they've gone out and bought the whole New Testament, um, the Psalms and Proverbs, which you can get bound together in one book in the Passion Translation. And that's that's something I believe that they're doing preemptively to fuel their passion uh, for Jesus. Um, But our worship team, if you come up, I'm going to finish with this verse. And so we're called to be different. We are called as followers of Jesus to stop imitating the ideals and opinions of the culture around you. But to inwardly be transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how you think. This will empower you to discern God's will as you live a beautiful life, satisfying and perfect in His eyes. And so as we go on and as we turn towards a new series next week, I want to encourage you not to leave the process of life renovation behind. That actually life renovation, that transformation, to use more biblical language, is something that we are called to engage with Jesus in continuously throughout our life. That we're called to continuously shift from makeshift to meaningful in greater and greater degree. We're called to shift from being maxed out to having margin in our life in greater and greater degree. We're called to shift from being broken to being beautiful through healing in Jesus' names in greater and greater degree. And we're called to not kind of just peter out and get lukewarm, but to continuously shift from passenger to passionate to burn hotter and hotter with passion for Jesus. And so just as a person who renovates a home uh, shifts from being kind of like it's an okay house to being really passionate about their house. I, I want you to keep pressing on, to keep transforming, to keep renovating your life with Jesus towards being passionate about a life that God has led you into and called you to live. To be proud, not in a sinful pride sense, but to be proud of who Jesus has made you to be. And so press on, keep going, to give your whole heart, your whole life, your whole soul, your whole being and your whole strength to Jesus.